Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity to open your word again. And uh, after hearing Wes share on Sunday about the persecution that's going on in South Africa, uh, we don't take this for granted that we can open our Bibles and and we can sing our praises to you with a sound system and a beautiful sanctuary like this and and in the uh, temperature-controlled atmosphere and we don't have to worry about somebody kicking the door down tonight and disrupting our study and hauling us all off to jail or something. God, we, we honor you tonight and, and we ask that you would be the center of attention in every word that's spoken and in every thought that enters our mind and everything that we retain in our hearts and minds. We pray that your Holy Spirit would help us sort it out. And God, I pray that the questions that we have would be answered tonight. Every question that we have would be answered tonight just as we draw close to you and we listen attentively for your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, notice as we got out of uh, chapter 10 in Matthew that the heart of Jesus' instructions to the twelve, remember um, chapter 10 was about Jesus sending out the twelve. And uh, they went from being disciples, which was students, learners, to being apostles, which was envoys, one who is anointed and sent out. Notice Jesus gave him authority over demons and sicknesses and all those things. And he sent them out. But I, I want you to just remember that the heart of Jesus' instruction was total dependence on the Father. Total dependence on the Father. He's, notice he didn't promise these guys that it was going to be rosy. On, on the contrary, he promised them trouble wherever they went. He promised them that they were going to be dragged into, the, they were going to be uh, persecuted, they were going to be dragged in front of governors and kings. And, and But the Lord said, don't worry about that. Don't worry about even what you're going to say because it'll be my Father who will speak through you. It'll be the Spirit of God that will speak through you. Don't even worry about what you're going to say when the time comes. So total, total, total dependence on the Father and His Holy Spirit. Now, sure He warned of persecution, but the key to Matthew chapter 10 was trust. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. One of the things I, I shared with the, the young lady that gave her heart to Jesus last night before we prayed with her to receive Christ, I made sure that she understood. Now listen, upon your spiritual birth, I want you to understand you're being born into a family that's at war. Okay? So now's your chance to back out if you if you got second thoughts. This isn't something you do lightly. And she, it was really neat because the Lord had given her some great insight to the fact that there was a spiritual battle raging around her even though she couldn't fight in it because she didn't know anything about spiritual life until the Lord drew her to himself last night. And we rejoice that there's another sister in the family of God. But... Trust. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. So we come to chapter 11 and, and verse 1, and this is kind of review for some because we, we opened our study last week with this as a kind of a preview, but it says, after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. Now, the towns of Galilee were where these guys grew up. They're very familiar with this area, Okay. I want you to understand that as we get into chapter 11 and chapter 12 tonight, what you're going to see is Jesus putting um, shoe leather, if you will, to his message from chapter 10. His message from chapter 10 was, you know what? All hell's going to break loose. Everybody's going to be opposing you and your thoughts and your, you know, because of me, he told his disciples. But here they are. Notice. He went, he, it says he went on from there to teach and preach. Okay, you know the difference between the two because we talk about this quite regularly. The, the teaching, of course, would be discourse with the disciples. It would be teaching is for those who are already believers in Christ. Okay, that's what we're doing here tonight. This is teaching. Um, I don't consider myself much of a preacher. Um, I, I do 
the work of an evangelist like Paul told Timothy, but I don't feel that I have the gift of evangelism like some guys. You know, John Corson. John Corson's got the gift of evangelism. You know, he gets up and does a teaching on frogs and 500 people get saved. You know, it's like he's got the gift of evangelism. Greg Laurie's got the gift of evangelism. You know, um, there are, are guys that have that gift. I don't have that gift, but Paul writes Timothy and he says, do the work of an evangelist. Okay, what does that mean? Fling the seed of God's word. And I'll tell you, if you don't, if you're not doing that, if you're a Christian, especially if you've been a Christian for any length of time, and you're not sharing your faith with people, here's what happens. You start getting, you start getting bummed out. You start getting depressed. You're like, well, what is this? What is this walk with the Lord? You know, you can only take in so much. You can only go to so many Bible studies. You can only take in so much. And then your sponge, so to speak, is full. You're full. You need to wring it out. Okay? So that's preaching. Taking the gospel to the lost. It's designed for unbelieving seekers. That's what, that's what preaching is. Teaching is for the saved, for those that know the Lord. So Jesus sits with his disciples and he teaches them. He goes out and he preaches to the lost. Okay, so that's the difference, just so you understand that. Problem that we have, a serious problem in the church today, is that they're not getting taught. The teaching isn't going on in the church. In other words, you go to church and you hear preaching, and preaching, and preaching. And the Christians never grow up, because they don't get any teaching. They're always on the elementary you know, every message is an evangelical message and you're going, well, wait a minute, all these people are saved. They don't need to hear about getting saved again. You know, they need to hear teaching now. They need solid, they need doctrine. They need sound doctrine. So he was teaching and preaching in the towns of Galilee. And then it says, verse 2, when John heard in prison what Christ was doing, that is, what Messiah was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? We talked about this a little last week. What's going on here? Is this some kind of lapse of faith that, that John is having? Um, you know, I'm not really sure if John was sending these disciples out to get an answer for himself, or if he was sending these disciples out, his disciples, out to Jesus so that they would understand that he is the Christ. You know, because John, on several occasions, testified. Remember when he said, no, we're talking about John the Baptist here. When he said, behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sin of the world. Yeah, he, he knew that Jesus was the Messiah. But think about this. Just think about this for a second. John's in prison. Okay? Now, what you need to understand when I say that, John, John is in prison at this point. You need to understand that John's not in the rec room hanging around the pool table, you know, with Oprah in the background, shooting pool with his buds in prison, okay? That's not what these, these were dungeons. He's in a dungeon. He's in a damp cell, probably with rats in the dark, you know, and he's discouraged. He's been there a while. He knows what's ahead. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, well, you know, here's the Lord out there telling what a great guy I am. You know, why isn't he getting me out of here? What's up with this? I'm going to go to my death here. Where's, where's, where's the Savior? You know, I don't know. I'm speculating, okay? Understand that that's speculation, what I'm saying now. But I want you to see what Jesus says in reply to this. First of all, before we, before we look at Jesus' response, I want you to turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 3. I think it's important that you understand how John felt about people following him and his disciples. Because you might get the wrong impression as we're reading in Matthew here. You might get the wrong impression that John had disciples and, and uh, he was no longer pointing to Jesus. Now he's building his own following. In uh, John chapter 3, after the account with Jesus and Nicodemus, verse 22 This is John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus, and it says, verse 22 of chapter 3, John. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some more time with them and baptized. 
Now John also was baptizing at the Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. Okay, get the picture? Verse 24. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone's going to him. To this John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater and I must become less. No. John makes this statement, Jesus has to become greater and I have to become less. And you know what? That's exactly what happened. Now Jesus has become greater, John has become less. He's in prison. He's about to be beheaded. Okay? Now look at the response back in Matthew. I just want to show you John's attitude in all this. Jesus replies, and this is to the disciples of John, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is preached to the poor. Now all of those things were prophesied about Messiah. And so anybody that knew the law and the prophets would go, well, he fits the bill. You know, he's doing everything that they prophesied about him. But then he says this. This is an interesting statement. Verse 6, Matthew 11. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. What would he mean by that? Blessed is the man who doesn't fall away, or your Bible may say, be offended in me, or on account of me. Now here's John, sitting in prison, going, wait a minute, isn't Messiah supposed to be setting up his kingdom? That was the second part of the prophecy. I mean, yes, he was going to do all these things. But he was also going to set up his kingdom. What the disciples didn't know is he wasn't going to set it up right then, right there. He first of all had to suffer and die. He had to live a sinless life. He had to go to Calvary. He had to be crucified. He took upon himself the sins of the world. He had to die. He had to be buried. And he had to be risen again. Now that's an offense. That offends people. That's why a lot of people don't come to Christ. You start telling them about Jesus and they can, well, yeah, I, you know, I, that, maybe that's all true. But died and rose again? Come on. You've got to be kidding. That's an offense. It's a stumbling stone. As a matter of fact, there were a lot of people, undoubtedly there were a lot that fell away because Jesus didn't fulfill prophecies to their expectations. Now, he fulfilled all the prophecies. He still is. But because they didn't, he didn't fulfill them the way they thought he was supposed to fulfill them, they fell away. So it's, they had these expectations of the Messiah, these carnal expectations. Of, how many times do we do that? How many times do I do that? I expect God to respond to me or my needs or my prayers or whatever in a certain way, and when he doesn't, I'm offended. That's, that's just me. That's man. But here's what Jesus said. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Let me just give you one example. In Matthew chapter 16, and you don't need to turn there, but just make a note of that. Matthew chapter 16, this was where uh, the guys were in uh, Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus asked them, who do men say that I am? And, and some said, well... Some, some say you're John the Baptist and some say you're Elijah or Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Or, but he said, who do you say that I am? And Peter responded, thou art the Christ. He said, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, blessed are you because flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, 
My Father revealed that to you. The only way you could know that I'm the Messiah is if my Father revealed it to you. So Peter was getting revelations from heaven. But then Jesus proceeded to tell Peter and the rest of the disciples that he was going to have to go to Jerusalem, suffer, and die at the hands of the elders and the teachers of the law. And as soon as he said that, I'm going to have to go to the cross, Peter was offended. He was offended. And he said, not so, Lord. You can't go to the cross. You're the Messiah, don't you remember? They can't kill you. But he was missing the whole point that Jesus said, I have to suffer, I have to die, I have to be buried, and I have to rise on the third day. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. So now, how did this come about, and where is, where is uh, John in all this? How, I, I really don't know. We'd be speculating. The text doesn't tell us what John's thinking. It just says that he sent these guys out to ask the Lord. He asks them, the Lord tells them. Verse 7 says, As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Well, then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you. And more than a prophet. Now, when Jesus says that, yeah, he's a prophet, all right. But he's more than a prophet. What does he mean by that? Well, all of the prophets that were pointing to the Messiah were pointing to the Messiah from quite a distance. If you think about it, how many years and years and years? We know at least 400 years have passed since the last prophet, since God spoke through a prophet, which was Malachi. Now we're in, in the, the Gospels here, some 400 years later, not having even heard from God. But all those prophets were pointing to Jesus, but they were pointing to him from a distance. John is even more, he's a prophet, but he's even more than a prophet. He's the forerunner. What an honor. He's the one that's on the scene to introduce the Messiah. What an honor. He's not pointing to the Messiah from a distance. He's right there. And Jesus says, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. That's a prophecy from Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. And by the way, if you read Malachi's prophecy, and, I, accept, and I, I suggest that you do, because Jesus quotes Malachi twice in just this little portion of Scripture, once here, and, and, and then he refers to, later on, he refers to uh, John, if you can accept this, was the Elijah that was to come before. That was also a prophecy of Malachi's. So in the context of Malachi's prophecy, and Malachi was uh, also a messianic prophet pointing to the Messiah to come, he says, I'll send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Now that's a reference to John the Baptist. And Jesus clarifies that. But look at verse 11. I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. What's he saying there? There's no greater man. There's no greater man than John the Baptist. Yet, this is interesting, yet, he who is, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Okay, now what does that mean? Well, let me remind you, nobody's gone into the kingdom of heaven yet at this point. At this point in the gospel, nobody's there yet. They can't because Jesus hasn't been crucified. He hasn't, been, he hasn't died and, and been buried and resurrected yet. So there, there is no one in the kingdom yet. But he says, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he, greater than John. Now John's a great man. He was born of a woman. And there's none, none greater born of woman than John. But when you're born again, and that's how you get into the kingdom of heaven, by the way. You all know that, John chapter 3. That's how you get into the kingdom of heaven. When you're born again, you're greater than the greatest man on earth. Now just file that somewhere. 
Just file that somewhere. When you are born again, when you're a born again Christian, you are greater than anyone, no matter who he is, on the earth. Okay? Just file that. That's important. Because verse 12 says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. Now that's a, that's a hard saying. That's a real hard saying. Turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 7. We're going to come right back, so keep your finger in there, but we need to clear this up a little bit. Chapter 7 of Luke, I want to look at verses 28 through 30. This is how Luke says it. Luke says, chapter 7, verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Verse 29, all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Now, think about this for a minute. John's whole ministry was pointing to Jesus, baptizing men and women into repentance for the forgiveness of their sins, and then pointing them to Jesus. He's the Messiah. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. But to put your faith in him, that's key. That's key. And that's what happens, and that's how you're born again. Now, take a look at, once again, in Matthew chapter 11. Verse 12 says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. Forcefully advancing and taking hold of the kingdom, I want you to understand this, is... Warfare, it's warfare, but it's of a spiritual nature, not a physical nature. It's not about what kind of positions you hold. It's not about what kind of possessions you have. It's not about you know whether you're a, a, a king or a, a rabbi or a Pharisee or a teacher of the law or you know it's not about position. As a matter of fact, Jesus says. If you want to enter the kingdom, you have to be like a little child. What's a little child? Well, a little child is trusting and believing and simply putting their faith in Messiah. So I want you to understand, it's, spirit, it's of a spiritual nature, this warfare. Repenting and confessing your sin is spiritual warfare. <laughs> How many of you know what I'm talking about? It's spiritual warfare. It's not an easy thing to do. It's not an easy thing to, to, to stand before a holy God and realize who you are. And the kingdom of God is advancing. And it is forcibly. It's, it, you know, last night when we were sitting w- with this young lady and sharing this, a simple presentation of the gospel going all the way back to Exodus and, and sharing about the, the, the bondage that Israel was in under Egypt and the stress and the strain that was put on them because they're under this bondage. Well, that bondage represents sin. And then they, the, the final plague that God was going to send was the death angel that was going to come into the camp. And so he said, take a lamb, slay the lamb, take the blood, put it on your doorposts and above your door frame. And the death angel is going to pass through that camp and whoever he sees the blood on the door, he's got to pass over that house. But if the blood's not on the door, there's death in that house. And so when you see Jesus coming on the scene, John says, Behold the Lamb of God. Those, they knew what he was talking about. They knew what he meant. They meant the Passover Lamb. That's why they call it the Passover, because the death angel had to pass over those houses. So I'm explaining this to this young lady, and you can just sense the spiritual warfare that's going on. Now she decided to open her heart to Jesus and to pray and to confess her sin and say, you know what, I, I, I need a Savior. And it's spiritual warfare, beyond a doubt. But I want to encourage you to be involved. Be involved. Take a hold of the kingdom of God.
Take a hold of somebody by the hand. Bring them to Christ. Take the time to give them. And I'll tell you this. You, you might think that your, your friends, that because they're in church, they've heard the gospel. i got news for you. There's people sitting in churches all over the place that have never heard that gospel. They've never heard that. And so don't be afraid to share the gospel with them. And so it says, For all the prophets, this is verse 13 now, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Now, Malachi, let's just turn there. It's the book right before Matthew. This is going to be kind of your reading assignment for the week, too. It's only like a four-chapter book, so I want you to read Malachi. Um, but if you look at uh, chapter 4 in Malachi and verse 5, this is what Jesus is referring to. Malachi says, through the Holy Spirit, of course, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day the Lord comes. Now, isn't that interesting? He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Now, interesting that Jesus says, this John the Baptist, he is the Elijah to come. If you can receive that, if you can accept that, and then he says in verse 15, we're back in Matthew 11, he who has ears, let him hear. That's a curious statement. He who has ears, let him hear. Kind of a wake-up call, really. You can hear things and not hear them. You know what I'm saying? God is opening the eyes of the disciples here to what's going on. Listen to verse 16. To what can I compare this generation? I want you to see the contrast now. The contrast is this. Believers, unbelievers. Okay, That's where the line is drawn. Either you believe that Jesus is the Messiah... Either you believe his good news, his gospel, that he came, lived a sinless life to put it on your account, to take your sinful life to Calvary. Either you believe that or you don't. And that's where the line's drawn, okay? Now, what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplace calling out to others. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, that's a funeral him, and you did not mourn. You see, their hearts and their minds are closed. And because their hearts and minds are closed, they're unaffected. They're uninfluenced by the good news of the gospel. That's what a hard heart will do. Now, I understand that, because I went through that 22 and a half years of my life before I was a broken man before God, and and cried out to him for help. And by the way, that's what it takes, being broken. But I know the condition of a hard heart. I know what it's like to live without Christ. And I'll tell you what, there's no turning back. Verse 18, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, this is interesting, but wisdom, but wisdom is proved right by her actions. Wisdom is proved, you know what wisdom is? Wisdom is the application of knowledge. I don't know if you ever thought of that. Maybe you never thought there was a difference between wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom is applying knowledge. You know, there's a lot of smart people in the world. There's a lot of people who have a lot of knowledge. They have no wisdom at all. They have a lot of knowledge. Knowledge is the facts and the figures. Wisdom is being able to apply it. The Bible tells us in uh, Paul's letter to Colossians that all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ Jesus. So how can you be a wise man and deny Christ? Let me prove it to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 18 through 25. Get this picture. How, how, can a, how can a person be wise and reject Christ when all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ Jesus? Listen to this. Verse 18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. Then Paul says this in verse 20. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was being preached to save those who believe. Now again, it comes back to the cross, at what was being preached. Christ and him crucified and him risen from the dead. Well, that's foolishness. If you're lost, if you're an unbeliever, you see where the line's drawn? The line is drawn between the believer and the unbeliever. Verse 22 says, Jews demand a miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Verse 24, here's the key. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom, wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Hmm. Where's the line drawn? Believer and unbeliever. So now, we're back in Matthew chapter 11. And you understand a little better why Jesus said, but wisdom is proved right by her actions. Her actions. How, do you, how does wisdom play out? It's applying the knowledge. You see, these men were claiming to have the knowledge. And they should have, by all rights. I mean, come on, the teachers of the law? Are you kidding? They knew the Bible frontward and backward. The Pharisees, they should have known. They should have known better. They were the ones in charge. What's going on here? Chuck Missler made, made a statement last night, and I wrote it down in my notes. And I want to quote it to you. It's worth writing down. The one sure barrier, the one sure barrier to truth is the presumption that you already have it. A sure barrier to truth, the one sure barrier to truth is the presumption that you already have it. You know what that does? It creates a hard heart. You try to tell something, you try to share something with somebody, and well, I know, I know, I know that. The one sure barrier to truth is the presumption that you already have it. And that's what Jesus was up against. Here you have these guys who they, they think they have it. They think they have everything they need. The Messiah is standing right in front of them. They're rejecting the Messiah, and they think they have it. Yikes. Now, the, it's the proud that reject the gospel. Listen to this. And in verse 20 of Matthew 11, Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. The key is repentance. If you don't repent, if you don't turn away from your sin, how can you please God? How can you walk with God? I love the way Paul writes that. He says your sin has to become utterly sinful. <laughs> if sin isn't utterly sinful to you, you're never going to turn away from it. These guys refuse to repent. And Jesus says in verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Now, he, he's, he's speaking of an area. These cities are in the vicinity of the Sea of Galilee. And you know that most of Jesus' miracles took place 
in that Galilee region. And so what Jesus is saying here is you guys have no excuse for rejecting the Messiah because you saw it all. You saw it all. You saw dead raised. You saw lepers cured. You saw blind that saw. You saw crippled that walked. You saw it all. You were there and you, and you could testify. Verse 22, but I tell you, it'll be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. What's Jesus saying? Well, there's a, there is a day of judgment. And there are degrees of judgment. Because he says it's going to be more tolerable, more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. So there's a couple of things we learn about judgment. There is a day coming when man will be judged and there are different degrees of judgment. Verse 23, And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No. You will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. You see, to reject the Messiah, to say, I don't need a Savior, that's blasphemy. That's the one unpardonable sin. We're going to come to that. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. Now, isn't it cool how Jesus is talking to, first of all, to his disciples, but then to these cities. He's rebuking these cities who rejected the Messiah. They were rejecting him. Even though they had seen all the miracles, even though they had all the evidence, they rejected him. And Jesus, right in the middle of that, just shoots a prayer up to his Father in heaven. Isn't that cool? I like that. I praise you, Father. Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these from the wise and learned. Now, who are these wise and learned? Well, they're the worldly wise men. Those are the guys we just read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that believe the cross is foolishness. You know, they, they didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. That's the, the worldly wise man. And you've revealed them to little children. Who are these little children? Well, the simple. They just they're simple and they believe they're believing yes father for this was your good pleasure all things have been committed to me by my father now he's talking to the people again notice notice at this point he's calling not our father not our father he says my father this is really cool because jesus sets himself apart as the son of god and remember when we were in John's Gospel, when that whole section started up about uh, the, the resistance to Jesus and the opposition to Jesus in order that they might kill him? Listen to what happens here. This is building up, and this is why Jesus does this. I mean, this is an in-your-face thing. If you're a scribe, if you're a Pharisee, if you're one of the leaders, you are very threatened at the presence of Jesus. And so listen, you can hear the tension mounting here. He says, all these things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Wow. Then he says, I love this, on the heels of that statement, think about that. The only ones that know the Father are the Son and the ones whom the Son chooses to reveal. And then he says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. What a deal. What a deal. Are you burdened? Do you need rest? Jesus is inviting you to come and have rest. Come. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Now, here's the key. Here's the key. Because you have to ask this question, do you want to know the peace of Christ? All right? Here's how you do that. Verse 29. Take my yoke upon you 
and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What's the picture? The picture is this, and all these guys knew this because this was an agrarian society. They did everything with ox and carts and yoke and plow. I mean, a, a, a yoke was what they what they put between these two animals in order that they would pull together and work together. But one of the interesting things that they used to do when they were training a young ox, they'd put them with a strong, sturdy ox who'd be doing all the work, and the other one's just kind of walking along and learning the ropes. Jesus says, when he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, some translations say, learn of me, what's he saying? I'm carrying the load. I want you right here beside me. I'm the teacher. You're the student. This is interesting because Jesus is, is, is literally telling these people that he wants them to become attached to him as their teacher. And that's what he's speaking to us tonight. Jesus is the teacher. We need to be attached to him. We need to be yoked to him. So the question is, you want this rest? You want this peace? As in... Jesus' picture here of the ox pulling the cart, attaching yourself to a certain teacher is to say you're yoked to that teacher, and that's what Jesus is calling for. We need to forsake all other teachers and teachings and listen to Jesus if you want peace and rest. If you don't want peace and rest, hey, listen to anybody that comes down the pike. You know, you can listen to anybody. I mean, some guys will say, I, I can't believe some of the things people are selling. When I worked at the group home, they had cable TV, and, and I used to turn it on early in the morning and watch some of the, some of the charlatans and the programs that were on, you know, and, and it, you could tell it was all about money, but, it was, but they were using the Bible as a hook, and guys had... Rarely did they read from them. They'd usually fling them around and swing them around and pound and shout and jump, and everybody thought that was the Holy Spirit. And so they'd give more. And, and, but I used to watch you know, some of their antics and some of the things that they were teaching. I'm like, it wasn't even close to Scripture. You know, These guys were, I mean, one guy was selling nails. You, know, you send in your donation and, and, and receive a nail. And then what you do is you pound the nail in your living room wall and you hang your family portrait on it and God will watch over your family because this is a blessed nail. You know? And I, you know, I'm watching this stuff and I'm just going, this is superstitious. This is not gospel. Can you imagine Jesus doing that? I, somehow I can't picture Jesus standing there handing out nails. Here, go home, tap this in your wall and put your family portrait on it. You need to forsake all the other teachings, and I'm telling you, there's a bazillion of them out there. There's people teaching you stuff that they don't even know you, they're teaching you. Just watch some of the television programming, and, and you'll see there's an underlying message to all that stuff. You know, Who are you listening to? Who are you influenced by? Are you yoked to Jesus? If you want rest and peace, you need to become a person of one book. You know, there's a lot of books out there. The books would, you know, fill the world. But this is God's word. Here's another interesting thing. A yoke only holds two. It only holds two. That's interesting. You and Jesus. Okay? I was telling my kids just the other day, you know what? God doesn't have grandchildren. You notice that? He doesn't have any grandchildren. You're either his child or you're not. He doesn't have grandchildren. You can't get into heaven because your mom and dad are Christians. That's what I'm saying. Well, are you a Christian? Yeah. Well, how do you determine that? Well, you know, I come from a Christian home. Well, you know, so what? I go to McDonald's. You know? The yoke only holds two. You need to forsake the rest. Come as a child, not as a critic, not as, as an examiner. You notice how a lot of these guys are coming to Jesus and trying to trip him up, trying to, trying to confuse him. Not, you don't come to Christ as an examiner. You come as a child, not a critic. Not to test, but to listen and to learn from Jesus. 
So all of the teaching in all of the world can't give you rest. It'll never give you rest. You can be the wisest man in the world in terms of knowledge, not have rest and peace. Here's what Jesus' teachings do. First of all, he reveals the Father. Secondly, he teaches of the nature and the character of the Father and the Spirit. And here's the third thing that he does. This is, this is the one that's not quite as pleasant, and that is he reveals our sin. Jesus reveals our sin. When you stand along, the closer you get to the Lord, this, this is in one sense kind of, kind of troubling, but in another sense it's very cool. The closer you get to the Lord, the more you realize your, your need for cleansing. I mean, it's like, it's, you ever had a friend that was better than you and everything? And everything, no matter what it was, he was better than you, and it's hard to walk alongside that person. Well, think of Jesus. He's perfect in every way. And the closer you get to him, the more you see your sin. But I'll tell you what, that's where the choice comes in. You, you, you ask him to cleanse you. You ask him to forgive you. If there's things that you're struggling with and you don't understand, you ask him. He'll, he'll turn on the light. He'll open the door. He said, if you ask, if you knock, if you seek, the door's going to be open. It's going to be given unto you, and you will find. So, as we go on here um, into chapter 12, it says, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some of the heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Now, this, this is pretty crazy. I pulled out the Mishnah again today, and I was reading through some of the... I mean, this thing is crazy. There's 38 pages in the Mishnah devoted to Sabbath law, and the print is like... I mean, it's like tiny. And I'm, I'm trying to read through some of this, and I can't even... Some of it, I, I mean, it's English, but not to me. I mean, some of it I couldn't even, I couldn't even make out. They got all these Sabbath laws, and, and it became... A keeping of the law. Not a following the Lord anymore. It was a keeping of the law. The law was Lord. The law was king. And look at how Jesus answers. Haven't you read? (laughs) What a slam. That was a slam. I don't know if you caught that. Haven't you read? These guys lived reading the scriptures, the Old Testament law and prophets. Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and he entered the house of God? And he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which is, was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Now, that's found in 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 6. It's an interesting account. David and his army are out there. And uh, he went to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech was freaking out. He was trembling. And, and he asked him, you know, why are you here and why are you here alone? And David went into this story. But anyway, they did. They ate consecrated bread because that's all he had. That's all he could give them. Well, I don't have any bread except for what the priests eat. Then Jesus said, verse, says, verse 5, Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? What does that mean? Well, you weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath, and yet the priests had to work on the Sabbath. In fact, there were extra sacrifices that they had to perform. Now, how did they get away with that? You can't work on the Sabbath. What are you doing working on the Sabbath? Jesus is trying to point out the irony in this. Why are you saying this? Why are you bringing this up? They were looking for some critical point. They're coming to Jesus out of criticism. They're coming to Jesus to examine him, not not to yield to him, not to surrender to him as Messiah, as Lord. Verse 6, I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now remember, he told them back in chapter 9, he told them, go study mercy. You need to go study mercy. Study what this means. I desire mercy rather than sacrifice. Let me give you an example. The one that comes to mind, because we were just studying this on Sunday morning in the adult Sunday school, the one that comes to my mind is um, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And here's this guy who had been attacked by robbers. He's laying in the ditch. 
And who walks by? A Levite. A Levite. Whoa. Wonder where he was going. Well, probably to church. Probably to synagogue. Probably to temple. And maybe to sacrifice. <laughs> you know. But he had no mercy. He lost sight of people. He had no heart. He walked by on the other side of the road, left this guy naked and bleeding in the ditch. Then it says a priest came by. A Levite and a priest walked by in this story that Jesus was telling them. Yeah, he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. If those guys had a heart for God, they would have had a heart for their fellow man and they would have stopped and helped him. But Jesus said, one did stop and help him. He was a Samaritan. <laughs> He's telling this story to Jews. And the, and the Jews are going, ugh. You know. But the Samaritan was the hero in the story. Why? Because he had mercy. He wasn't so heavenly-minded that he was no earthly good. He had mercy. You know, and it would be easy to point fingers at somebody and say, you know, oh, what's the matter with these guys? But you know what? I've found myself doing that when I'm studying and, and, and somebody comes and, hey, you know, don't bother me. I'm studying the scriptures. You know, you're like, but pastor, I need help. Go away. No, I don't say that, but, but you know, even thinking it is bad enough, you know. Um, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent. You see, Jesus is in the right here. His disciples are in the right doing what they're doing, and they're condemning him. And then he says, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they asked him. Now, now you get the whole picture. You get the whole picture. They're looking for a reason now to accuse Jesus. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, when I sat this afternoon with that Mishnah in my hand, the thing is about this thick. It's a heavy book. It'd be heavier if I was trying to keep every law that was in there. <laughs> It'd be much heavier. But, but that's a... a compilation of the oral law, the oral Jewish law. It's a big part of Orthodox Judaism. Now, these guys are saying, is it lawful? Is it lawful? I want to tell you, I'm amazed that Jesus just doesn't smack these guys, you know. I'm amazed. He, he says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had one law, and they couldn't keep it. Moses comes down from Sinai with ten laws. They couldn't keep them. So how is it that they think they're going to keep 640, or whatever it is, laws? How is it? Is it lawful? Now we got law libraries. Law libraries. You're studying law. Oh, man. You must be a brainiac. No, you, you can reduce that to, to one, one law. <laughs> Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and spirit. All your strength. If you want to add a second one, love your neighbor as yourself. You do that, you, you've kept the law. And by the way, that won't get you to heaven either. The only way we get to heaven is by the sacrifice that Jesus made. I'm not painting a picture of keeping the law here. But is it lawful? And he said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Now, look at that. Look at that. Aware of this, and I love that because Jesus is pretty much aware of everything that's going on around him. <laughs> He's God in the flesh. He's aware of this. Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed him, and he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant, whom I have chosen, the one I love. 
in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. Now, even though they're plotting to kill him, he's fulfilling the prophecies of Isaiah. He's not going to argue with them. He's not going to cry out. It says they won't hear his voice in the streets. One of the reasons why Jesus told them, listen, don't go telling everybody who I am. One of the reasons he told them that was because he, he wasn't into these public titles. He was, he was God with us. He was God in the flesh. But he wasn't taking his ministry at this point. He was concerned that they were going to forcefully take him and make him king. In fact, they tried on several occasions. But it's interesting that even though he's ministering to all these people, he's compassionate with all these people. It says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Even if there's the slightest glimmer of hope there, Jesus is going to fan the flame. He's not going to snuff it out. He's very gentle. What did he just say when he told people, Come to me? He said, For I am gentle and humble of heart. You'll find rest for your souls. That's what he wants to do. He wants to restore man. Then, They brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? What are they asking? Could this be the Messiah? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Now, that's a simple lesson in the Spirit of God. Being Remember, you can't enter the kingdom unless you're born again. Okay, There's one sin that keeps man out of heaven, and that is the rejection of Jesus Christ as Messiah. That's a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I don't need the Holy Spirit. I don't want, you understand? That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We had a guy at a Bible study one time who, when he first started coming, was so paranoid about the fact that he may have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And I said, well, the very idea that you're concerned about it tells me that you haven't. You understand? This is a sin that's on purpose. It's a purposeful rejection. It's in your pride and arrogance rejecting the gift of God, rejecting the Messiah. So, you know, you haven't if you're in that state. You know, so then he, he was like, Whew, you know, wow, you know, I thought I'd blasphemed you. No, if you're, if you're that concerned about it, you, you haven't. And, and then, you know, a couple, few weeks went by and he was okay with that. But then all of a sudden he wasn't worried about it anymore. So then he thought, well, you know, maybe I, maybe I have. And it was like this thing, you know, it's like, no, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. It's not like falling in and out of your salvation or, or any of that. Rejecting the Messiah. When you step into eternity, when you die, when you fold up this tent and put it aside and step into eternity, You are either born again or you're not. 
If you're born again by the Spirit of God, if you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, you know that Christ is going to receive you. You know that. Jesus explained that to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Rejecting him, which is what these guys are doing. They're rejecting him. They want to kill him. You're not who you say you are. And it's about the Spirit of God. Now they're saying that the work that Jesus is doing, they're attributing it to the spirit of the devil. Okay? It's not really God. Make, it says, verse 33, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers. You know what Jesus is saying there? You guys were hatched from snake eggs. That's what he's saying, you brood of vipers. How can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. And then some of them said, some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. Perform for us, Jesus. And he answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one is one greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places, seeking rest, and does not find it. And then it says, I'll return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. And then it goes, and it takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in, and they live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. So Jesus is telling them, you're rejecting the one that God sent to you to redeem you. And while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and his brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Well, that's amazing. That is amazing to me. Because God is saying, through his son, he's saying, you want to be in the family? I mean, it was so awesome to welcome this girl yesterday into the family of God because she put her faith in Christ and she received Jesus as her Lord and Savior. That's how we're adopted into God's family. By accepting his will and not ours. And sometimes we don't even understand his will. Lord, why am I going through this? Why am I dealing with this? What? Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane says, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass by me, let it pass by me, but not my will. Do you understand that our prayers are about getting God's will, not ours? I think if we understand that, our prayer lives will be drastically changed. Because we'll pray, Lord, your will in this situation. I don't want to just go through this. I want to grow through it. And here he's saying the key, the key, the one that does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Was he turning away from his brothers and sisters? Was he rejecting his mom? No. He was saying, truly, the ones who are related to me are the ones who are related to me through a spiritual birth. And so again, what's the line? What's the dividing line? Belief and unbelief. That's the dividing line. So where do we stand? 
And where do we take this and how do we apply this? I, I, think, uh, <laughs> I think the Lord is going to give you opportunity this week to talk to someone about receiving Christ as their Lord and Savior. I, th- I think he will if you ask him. I know it's his will. I know there are those right in this community and your communities that, that need to hear. So who will take the message? Remember Isaiah? The Lord says, who will go for me? Lord, I'll go. He realizes that he's just a a vessel, and at that point he says, I'm an unclean vessel. I'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. And, And so then the angel took a coal from the altar and cleansed his lips, then sent him. And I think the Lord will do the same for you and I. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word again tonight. So many different ways you've spoken to us and at so many points in this study in uh, Matthew 11 and 12, we can see ourselves, Lord, in decisions that we've made. And, and Lord, we, we see the need to be good ambassadors, to simply trust you and not worry about all the physical things that we deal with, but just knowing that you're with us and that you're going to speak through us. And Father, I pray for a, a holy boldness. I pray that you'd cleanse us. Nobody wants to drink out of an unclean vessel. So I pray that you'd cleanse us, Lord. But then as we leave this place, that we could be good ambassadors of your gospel. Just simply lay it out simply. And I do pray for the gift of evangelism, Lord. I I do pray for that, and I pray for that for each one here. But even those of us that don't have that gift at this point, Lord, help us to do the work of an evangelist. Help us to be out there sowing the seed of your word. And we trust you, for we know that anyone who seeks and asks and knocks, you'll bless. So go with us, we pray. Fill us with your spirit, we pray. And use us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.